From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have Edward Snowden in Moscow talking about NSA surveillance and the actions that got him charged with violating the Espionage Act. He spoke at a conference at UC Irvine recently. Amy Willens organized it. She'll talk about Snowden and introduce our clips of his answers to questions. Also, Henry Kissinger, war criminal, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Greg Grandin has comment and analysis. His book, Kissinger's Shadow, was just published in paperback. First up, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is still campaigning for the political revolution. He's protesting with Native Americans against the Dakota Access Pipeline. He's fighting alongside New York's Working Families Party. And he's talking about forming a Senate Progressive Caucus with Elizabeth Warren and Russ Feingold. You may remember that he got more than 13 million votes in the Democratic primary. But the senator is not satisfied. To find out why, John Nichols sat down with him recently, along with Katrina Vandenhoevel. We have audio clips of their conversation. And for a report on that interview, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a frequent guest here. His most recent book is People Get Ready. We reached him today, as usual, in Madison. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you, John. So set the scene for us here. You and Katrina spoke with Bernie where? In his Senate office. And folks will note that after being pretty high high profile during the Democratic National Convention, Bernie Sanders uh, kind of stepped back quite a bit and was pretty much out of the limelight through a good portion of August. He was doing things back in his home state of Vermont. Uh, but he was also working very, very hard on a book, which is due for release later this fall. So there have not been many interviews with him uh, since the end of his campaign for the Democratic nomination. And this is uh, certainly the, the longest, I think, most detailed one uh, to be conducted and published so far. So how was Bernie doing when you talked to him? Was he depressed about losing the nomination and, and pessimistic uh, about American politics? No, not at all. I mean, anybody who knows Bernie Sanders, I, I, I think, knows that he is rarely depressed or exuberant. Uh, the reality is that there's a pretty steady personality there. Bernie Sanders was very excited about, very happy about the fact that the ideas that he brought to the campaign trail, that he has brought to the campaign trail, and that he, I think, intends to continue to push, showed real traction, that they became very, very influential in the 2016 campaign. So let's listen to some clips from the interview you and Katrina Vanden Heuvel did with uh, Bernie. Uh, where do we start? Midway into the interview, we were talking about uh, the 2016 campaign, and, and we asked a question that, that I suppose not every candidate wants to be asked, and that is, um, what do you say to your supporters, your primary supporters, who would feel betrayed because you have endorsed uh, the candidate you ran against in the primaries, Hillary Clinton. Okay, what does a Donald Trump presidency mean for the people of my state and for the people of this country and for the people of the world? Uh, and I think it would be an absolute disaster. Uh, it would be beyond a disaster. And therefore, uh, as a United States Senator, I've got to do everything that I can to make sure that Donald Trump does not become president. 
Now, do I personally have strong differences of opinion with Hillary Clinton? Well, I think the whole world knows that. That's what the campaign uh, for over a year was about. So I think the goal here is not to say, well, Hillary Clinton is the best you know, thing in, in, in the history of the world. She's great. She's wonderful. She's terrific. What we should be saying is that if you look at all of the issues, virtually all of the issues of importance to the people of this country, issues like uh, making uh, public colleges and universities tuition free, Hillary Clinton is now on record with doing that for people making $125,000 a year or less. You know what? That is pretty revolutionary. Mm -hmm. That will transform the lives of millions of families in this country. That's what Clinton stands for. Okay. Clinton is on record in supporting a doubling of community health centers in this country, which will mean that tens of millions of people now, poor people, will have access to health care do not have that today. Is that significant? It is very significant. Clinton is on record in supporting pay equity for women so that women do not continue to make 79 cents on the dollar compared to, to men. I happen to believe that one of the great crises facing the planet is climate change. Donald Trump happens not to think that climate change is real. All right? Clinton takes it seriously. So once we got Bernie Sanders on the record, you know, as regards the, the current election and, and where he stands uh, on both Clinton and obviously his, his very impassioned opposition to Donald Trump, uh, we asked him, where do things go after the election? Politics does not end the day of the election. The day after the election, when Hillary Clinton wins, you can be assured that I and other progressives in Congress and outside of Congress will be saying to Secretary Clinton, President-elect Clinton, take a good look at the Democratic platform that you supported. Because together, President-elect Clinton, we are going to implement that platform and you know what we're going to do to help you move forward in that direction? We're going to involve many millions of people in the process who are going to break up the large Wall Street banks, who are going to make public colleges and universities tuition free, who are going to be very aggressive on climate change and transforming our energy system, all of which is in the democratic platform that you supported. So that's where I am. It's not to sit here to say you, hey, to say to you that Hillary Clinton is going to be great on all those issues. Absolute confidence. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that on many, many issues, her views are progressive. On those areas, and they're awesome, where they're not progressive, we've got to push it. And that the day after the election, we mobilize millions of people to make sure that we have, that we make her to be, to be the most progressive president that she can be. Our interview came at a time when a number of polls had showed, uh, were showing that the race was getting closer. And a lot of Democrats around the country have expressed concern. And we asked Sanders what he thought about the Democratic campaign that is being conducted at this point, and, and whether, frankly, Democrats are doing it right. It's the Democrats' same old weakness, and that is um, much too much dependency on consultants and, and TV ads, uh, rather than mobilizing people. People are hurting, and there's some good news economically yesterday about wages going up, and that's great. But the truth is that we have had for 40 years a declining middle class. People are angry and they're hurting and they're very, very worried about their children. Mm -hmm. Something that people don't think. People are worried about themselves, yeah, but they're worried about their kids and the future, their kids, for their kids. Will their kids ever pay off their student debt? Will their kids ever get a decent paying job? Especially for kids and young people who have not gone to college. So I think um, the Democrats have got to be uh, running a grassroots 
uh, campaign, uh, mobilizing people and being prepared to take on the 1% uh, with an agenda that speaks to the needs of ordinary Americans. Going up from the 2016 campaign, you know, kind of getting to that, you know, 30,000 foot level, we asked, uh, you know, after having gone through the primary process, after trying for the nomination, and, and also uh, as somebody who's gotten quite involved in some Senate races and House races around the country, what did Bernie Sanders think uh, the Democratic Party needed to do to improve itself? How did it need to change? And his answer was very blunt. It's revolutionary change. It needs to, what politics is about now, by and large, although Trump has change that certainly on the Republican side. What politics is about for most candidates, you want to run for the United States Senate, you hire a consultant who will tell you about polling, who will do polling for you, who will tell you the kinds of television ads, who will tell you that most of the money you raise has got to go into TV. And that's kind of, so raising money and the extraordinary amount of time people spend raising money uh, and then putting that money into the hands of consultants who then put on TV ads. That's more or less what campaigns are about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we've got to change that. Going into the 2016 campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders was perhaps best known as the only Democratic Socialist or the, the one announced Democratic Socialist in Congress. And, um, and so we asked him, you know, uh, was being a Democratic Socialist a burden? in this campaign. So I believe from my heart of hearts that the ideas that I was talking about were not courageous, mm -hmm. uh, radical, bold ideas that I was a man of great courage. <laughs> I believe that the ideas that I was talking about, in fact, was what most Americans supported if they had the chance and the opportunity to hear those views, which they do not under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. So you could watch CNN for the next 14 years and you're not going to hear a discussion yeah. about uh, the need for a um, single-payer health care system. And you're not going to see the critiques of the drug companies. And you're not going to talk hear much discussion about income and wealth inequality. So point being, the ideas that I was fighting for are not radical ideas. They're the ideas that the vast majority of the American people believe. Poll just came out amazing a couple of weeks ago. A majority of Republicans, you saw it? Now I believe we should ask people making 250000 a year more to pay more taxes. Sure. Yeah. Republicans, all right? Trade, I think we helped yeah. change public consciousness about trade. So what the American people had the chance is to hear somebody whose point of view was outside of mainstream, and you know what? These were views that they were very comfortable with. The effort to keep the Bernie movement alive, the successor to his presidential campaign, is called Our Revolution, launched officially a couple of weeks ago. It's endorsed about 50 candidates nationwide, maybe it's 60 by now, several ballot initiatives. Uh, you also talked to him about Our Revolution and his relationship to this new uh, group. What, what is your sense of the current state of Our Revolution? Well, it got off to a rough start. Right as it was beginning, you had, uh, you know, debates about how it would be organized, debates about staffing and, and things of that nature. Uh, and, and so we asked him some about that and, you know, how it would raise money. And, and uh, he, of course, uh, pointed out that, you know, it, this is a successor to the campaign, but it isn't a group that he's running. It's run 
by obviously people who were very sympathetic to his candidacy um, and people who I think share a lot of the vision, but other folks. And um, with that said, and with you know some other provisos, uh, it was quite clear he was proud of the endorsements and uh, I think very pleased with some of the good election results. There have been a number of primaries in which our revolution candidates have run and done quite well. Um, and so he, he was clearly very aware of that and very engaged with it. Uh, on the higher, deeper level, however you want to measure that, uh, I, I think that it, it was clear his hope for our revolution is that it, it is a distinct force to advance uh, a host of progressive ideas and also to really reinforce and advance uh, individual progressives within the the Democratic Party and, and its periphery. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's always a challenging thing. Now, I'm, you know, gonna, that beyond what Bernie Sanders says in yeah. my own sense of it, um, these are tough things. Uh, I have, for my entire career covering politics, watched candidates try to create or supporters of candidates try to create ongoing organizations. And there's a real difference between the urgency of a campaign, which kind of gets everybody to throw in and focus on something, and the development of a political bureaucracy, something that exists permanently. And the pressure there, the stress, uh, is sometimes too much for uh, movements to, to bear. that They don't play out that well. And other times, things come of it. One more thing. Bernie Sanders emphasized in the interview you did with him that he's got a job as the senator from Vermont. The Senate is in session, I think, for another four weeks or three weeks or something like that. How much campaigning for Hillary Clinton is Bernie Sanders going to be doing between now and November 8th? My sense was that he'll do a good bit of it, that he is incredibly impassioned uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, he does not want Donald Trump to be president of the United States, and he is very determined to go out and do what is necessary to stop that from happening. Uh, he has uh, some differences with Hillary Clinton, but he also agrees with her on a number of issues. And he talked at length about, you know, particularly some of the areas where she's moved uh, toward more progressive stance. He likes a lot of the Democratic platform, and he wants to emphasize that. He's got a number of candidates around the country, people like Russ Feingold and Zephyr Teachout, that he wants to campaign for. So my sense is that he'll be on the trail quite a bit. And, um, and that high energy you saw in the primary campaigns, I think you'll see a good deal of this fall. By the same token, um, he clearly has this kind of longer vision of a lot of tasks and, and things that are in play. And I must say that as he looks at this, these next weeks in the Senate and the weeks immediately after the election, I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership issue is one that he's very, very focused on. He does not want to see a new NAFTA-like trade deal uh, brought up in the last minute of the Obama presidency, or frankly, in the first minutes of a Clinton presidency. He is very passionate about making sure that the TPP doesn't uh, kind of slip through in some midnight session of the Senate. John Nichols, the interview with Bernie Sanders that he and Katrina Vanden Heuvel did is the cover story in The Nation magazine this week. John, thanks for talking with us. Great pleasure to be with you, John.
Edward Snowden is the subject of the new film by Oliver Stone that's in theaters now. Today, we have Snowden speaking and answering questions at a UC Irvine conference where he appeared via live video. He talked about his motivation for violating secrecy laws. He said he'd be willing to go to prison if he could return to the United States. We're going to listen to some highlights from his talk and his answers to questions from the audience. We have Edward Snowden live on tape because of Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. So how did you get Edward Snowden to speak at UC Irvine over live video feed from Moscow and answer questions? It does seem unlikely, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. So I run this forum at UCI called the Forum for the Academy and the Public. We put together these conferences, and the last one was on freedom of expression at the anniversary of the Charlie Hebdo killings in Paris. And, you know, I thought about Edward Snowden and... And I thought he'd be great, but I never even really. And then I thought, oh, but my friend Bart Gelman is writing his biography. So maybe Bart could somehow put me in touch with Snowden. So I, I knew Bart from when I lived in Jerusalem, when I was writing for The New Yorker from there, and he was working for The Washington Post. And I emailed him, and he said, oh, you know, I can't speak for Edward, but get in touch with uh, Ben Wisner, who is... Edward's lawyer works for the ACLU, and and maybe he'll put you in touch with Edward. And he did, and eventually everybody said yes. And Bart was the uh, go-between, and then he was the interviewer for this incredible um, moment when Snowden spoke to Orange County. And Bart Gelman played an extremely important role in the initial revelations. He was one of the two journalists, along with Glenn Greenwald, that Edward Snowden shared his now-famous archive with. And let me just emphasize here, it's been a little some misconceptions about what Edward Snowden did. Edward Snowden did not release any classified material to the public. He released it to a couple of journalists working at high-profile institutions, Glenn Greenwald, then at The Guardian, Bart Gelman, then at the Washington Post, and he gave them complete freedom and complete responsibility to decide what here was newsworthy, what here was significant, and what they should stand up to the NSA uh, the, and the Justice Department, who, of course, argued that all of this was endangering national security. So we have a lot to thank Bart Gelman for. That's right. He's kind of a hero in this, too, I think. Tell us what we're going to hear. So Bart opened the conversation by asking Snowden why he gave the Washington Post and The Guardian all that classified material, and he gave a great answer about the Constitution. Everyone who works for the CIA or the NSA, on your first day, you come in uh, and you're asked to take sort of an oath of office. Uh, it's called the oath of service. To defend not the president, not the intelligence agency, not any secrets. There is no oath of secrecy. There's only an oath of service. You say, I will defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
And the Fourth Amendment of that Constitution says the government will not engage in unreasonable searches or seizures. And this is where the government and I came to a point of conflict. The government argued they could collect communications from everyone so long as they only looked at them when they had a good reason to do so. But the Constitution says that seizing those communications in the first instance is itself a violation of the Constitution. Then uh, Snowden was asked what people should do with their smartphones, given that the NSA has the capability of monitoring their metadata, the information about when and where they called and what number they called. Let's listen. People go, you know, maybe it doesn't matter because it's not actually what I'm saying on the phone call, but that's not the case. The government actually considers metadata more valuable than content. Uh, the director of the NSA, former director, said we kill people based on metadata. Former top lawyer of the NSA said metadata tells you absolutely everything about somebody's life. If you have enough metadata, you don't need the content. Content being, of course, uh, what you actually said on the phone or what you actually wrote in the email. The real question here is, should we change our lives because the government has abused our rights, or should we change our government to respect our rights? I know where I stand on that. Yes, everyone should be taking uh, basic measures to protect their communications because we know that right now the government is not respecting our rights, right? If you have a smartphone right now, you should go to the App Store or the Android Store, whatever it is you use, uh, and look for an app called Signal. Uh, by a group called Open Whisper Systems. Uh, this is an open source program. It's completely free. All of your calls will no longer simply be going over the uh, global communications network electronically naked. Uh, it'll be done in a secure manner that even Whisper Systems, the people who provide the software, uh, cannot break. Uh, so these are general principles which people don't understand very well. And to be honest, they shouldn't need to. This is an outdated dynamic of an internet that was designed before we were aware that the network path that everybody's crossing all the time is hostile, that it's being used by intelligence agencies, not just the NSA. Let's say you trust the NSA. Let's say you love the NSA. Let's say you work for the NSA, right? You get a bonus from NSA. Uh, what about every other government, right? What about governments that you don't like, that you disagree with? What about the Saudi Arabian government, the Russian government, the Iranian government, North Korean government, the Chinese government, uh, French government, Israeli government? Whoever you are afraid of, they have the same capabilities. It's cheap now. It's easy. This is not rocket science, right? You can get a couple smart grad students, uh, and they can do this on a global level uh, within the span of a year. You can get a single individual who watches some YouTube videos and do this to the network at your coffee shop or your dorm in a matter of hours. I'm just thinking of all the UCI students out there thinking, wow, we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at, the, at this Snowden event at UC Irvine, people in the audience asked questions. And the first question was, under what circumstances would you come back to the United States? The sound's a little murky at the beginning. He says he's volunteered to go to prison a number of times. Let's listen. I've actually volunteered to go to prison uh, a number of times uh, in conversations with the Department of Justice. Uh, they have countered uh, with, they won't torture me. <laughs> I actually have that in writing from the Attorney General. And, and while I think that's a start, uh, 
I think there are fair trial guarantees uh, that everyone would agree are, are necessary, right? We don't want to create a system where we have whistleblowers serving as a deterrent to other whistleblowers. Uh, now, there's, of course, plenty of valid criticism of me. People say they don't like the way I did this. They don't like the reporters that I work with. They don't like uh, the, the news agencies that I work with. Or, you know, they said maybe something could have gone wrong, despite the fact that now it's 2016, this happened in 2013, and no one has ever been shown to have died or has been harmed in any way as a result of these disclosures. Uh, people in the government counter uh, that it could have happened. They said, well, something could have gone wrong. Uh, maybe the next person will be less responsible than you were. And so because of this, you know, we need you to go away for life or whatever. Um, or some even presidential candidates are saying, hey, hang this guy with a rope. Uh, because they want to act tough. But when we think about what that means, right, uh, what's actually happening when you go, well, something could have gone wrong, that's not an argument against whistleblowing. That's not an argument against the whistleblower. That's an argument against the free press. That's an argument against journalism. What they're doing is they're shifting focus from talking about the concrete harms of their bad policy to talk about the theoretical risks of journalism. Next, Snowden was asked, should anybody with access to classified information feel free to release it if they think it would be good for the nation? So whistleblowing is the means of last resort. Uh, this should never be something that, you know, people just go, oh, it's classified, let's, let's throw it out there. But I will counter, because this is actually a, a, a common criticism, and on the surface it seems quite persuasive because we go, oh, it'll be anarchy. It'll set the precedent that we'll just have wild leaks. People will start using uh, leaks to either support or attack policies that they don't like. But that is the status quo today. If you open any newspaper in any part of the world on any given week, uh, there's a high likelihood that you will see classified programs being discussed on the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, followed by said anonymous officials. Uh, and I think Bart uh, could uh, quite strongly support this. Uh, it is very common that we have this, this culture of impunity for leaks that the administration likes, that supports sort of its political preference. Uh, and we have an extraordinary and exceptional punishment of leaks that it dislikes. And even in the case where the leaks are not officially approved, where they do not serve the interests of the government, for example, recently General David Petraeus kept above top secret information, uh, so-called black books that had special access program information on them, uh, from his time as a general uh, that included the most highly classified information, uh, information about the president's thinking and deliberation on matters of policy, his plans and intentions, how to decide certain issues. Uh, he took this and he shared it with his biographer secretly, who he was sleeping with uh, to get more favorable treatment. Uh, and he was eventually charged, which in itself was extraordinary. Had this been uh, a normal line worker or an average individual, they would have gone to jail for a very long time, possibly the rest of their life. Uh, do you know how long General Petraeus went to prison for? Not a single day. 
Instead, he was fined less than he'll make in the span of a single speech. This is why we need to think about the fact that there is no precedent that we're risking uh, setting by recognizing that sometimes matters of public interest will be leaked by individuals uh, and sometimes it will be done irresponsibly. It's done irresponsibly every day and the government does not punish it. At the same time, when the public interest is clearly and demonstrably served, in certain cases, even if it did happen contrary to law, this is why we have exceptional powers built into our methods of government. This is why the president has powers of clemency, powers of pardon. The last question that was asked of Edward Snowden was, how do you want Americans to remember you? I don't. What ultimately matters are the issues, right? I, I've said this before. Everybody's like, hey, you know, this guy, this guy, let's talk about this guy. I'm not so important. I was simply the mechanism of disclosure. Yes, we want to encourage people. We want to protect people who take risks on behalf of society. We want to pass better whistleblower protection laws and things like that. But I, as an individual, simply do not matter that much. Uh, if you want to look for people who really did the public a service, uh, look to the journalists who actually brought this to you, who fought with their editors to get better versions of the story. When the government said, if you do this, you're a criminal, you've got blood on your hands, you're risking the lives of this, that, and the other. And they said, we've heard your argument, but we don't find it convincing. We think it's more important that the public know and they make up their own minds. That's what you should remember. We have a free press for the reason, and we should always defend it. We have a free press, and we should always defend it. What an intelligent and eloquent person. Edward Snowden is a real hero, and we are so lucky to have him fighting this fight. Oliver Stone's movie, Snowden, is playing now in theaters across America. Variety called it the most important and galvanizing political drama by an American filmmaker in years. And you can join the campaign seeking a presidential pardon for Edward Snowden. Just go to pardonsnowden.com, one word, pardon Snowden. See all the great people who are part of this and sign the petition to President Obama. Well, Amy Willens, thanks for getting us, Edward Snowden, <laughs> and thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. Now it's time to talk about Henry Kissinger, war criminal and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He recently announced he will not endorse either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, even though the news media reported that she had been trying to get his endorsement. It's why Bernie Sanders declared during the primaries that he was, quote, proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. For comment and analysis, we turn to Greg Grandin, He's a prize-winning historian who writes for The Nation and teaches at NYU. His terrific book, Kissinger's Shadow, The Long March of America's Most Controversial Statesman, is out now in paperback. Greg Grandin, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Let's start with the moment where Kissinger becomes a, a decisive force in American history, fall 1968. Yeah. The incumbent president, Lyndon Johnson, has withdrawn from his own re-election campaign because Democrats no longer support his war in Vietnam. The Democrats nominate 
Hubert Humphrey, his vice president, as their candidate after Bobby Kennedy is assassinated in Los Angeles. LBJ seeks to negotiate an end to the war before Election Day, which everybody agrees will lead to victory for the Democrats in November. Nixon knows this. Nixon is the Republican candidate. He understands that peace in Vietnam would make Hubert Humphrey president in 1968. Henry Kissinger, at this point, is a Harvard professor. What... What was his advice to Nixon in 1968? Well, Kissinger used his uh, ties with the Democratic establishment, with the with the foreign foreign service, LBJ's foreign service, which was trying to negotiate a ceasefire in Paris to to basically play both sides. And at this point, he realized that the political center in which he was on the right wing of the political establishment, you know, was clearly kind of on the right, but he saw himself very much as part of the establishment. He was an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller. He had uh, been part-time advisor to Ted Johnson, to, to JFK. But he saw that center evaporating. Robert Holbrook, the diplomat, talks about Kissinger watching the, the, the 1968 Democratic Convention on TV and realizing his career is is over. That you know that you know <laughs> if he stays at least in the center. And what he starts to do is he starts to he starts to feed information to the Nixon campaign. And and uh, it's significant. I mean, this is well known, but it's significant because it's it's Kissinger kind of realizing that the center is disappearing and and him making his peace. I mean, this is one of the things. One of the one one of the things that's interesting about Kissinger, as the U.S. foreign policy establishment lurches to the right, he. He lurches with it. He makes his peace with Nixon, then later on with Reagan, then later on with the neocons. So he's constantly kind of following, you know, power, and that, that's what's interesting about this particular moment. But he feeds Nixon information that LBJ is about to, you know, they're about to broker a ceasefire, which might have tilted the, you know, the election to to, to Humphrey, and then uh, Nixon is able to use that to back channel to, to South Vietnam and and tell them to to come out and and oppose the deal and and that scuttles it and then and then Nixon wins and and within a, f- a few weeks Kissinger is basically becomes one of, the, one of the most powerful men in the world as the, as 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 Nixon's national security advisor one of the closest elections in American history 1968 and, and uh, I think a lot of historians would say that it, uh, that the lack of a Vietnam settlement uh, that September and October are what made Nixon president Kissinger has, of course, many critics, but he also has defenders. They say, yes, he he made some mistakes, but he also has great <laughs> achievements. I'm sure you know what they are. Detente with the Soviet Union, the opening to China, peace between Israel and Egypt. And, of course, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, Greg, that he isn't, helped prolong. <laughs> isn't, isn't all of that true? Well... One can take, say, detente and point to it as an achievement, but then also look at the way in which Kissinger himself undermined the possibility of detente congealing and, 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 and maturing by his foreign policy in southern Africa, for example, or his foreign policy in, 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 uh, in the Middle East. Or one could look at the way he made his peace with the neocons and, and the new right, who came to power attacking detente. So he, even if we want to grant the fact that... He, Detente was an achievement and an example of statesmanship and accepting the realities and limits of American power in the world. He himself undermines its own possibility of success. But setting that aside, 
the point of my book isn't necessarily to have a, a scorecard of, of, of how bad Kissinger was. We already have that with Christopher Hitchens, which is a, a useful book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. What I was trying to get at more was looking at Kissinger's career as, as, as a way of linking the 60s to today. I think Kissinger is useful because he's very um, self-aware. His philosophy of history and morality is very, very self-conscious much more so than other foreign policy intellectuals. And I think we can use that self-awareness at kind of getting at some of the fundamentals of American exceptionalism. And to understand his self-awareness, you, you did some amazing research, especially his early uh, writings. You, you read Kissinger's Harvard senior thesis from 1950, 400 pages long. You have my <laughs> admiration and my sympathy here. What was it like to read the senior thesis of Henry Kissinger, 400 pages, and, and why bother? Was it worth it? Well, there's, it's called The Meaning of History. It was the longest senior thesis in Harvard history. <laughs> and um, it wasn't about diplomacy. Um, it, was a, it was a meditation on Spengler, Kant, and, uh, and, and a few other continental philosophers. I think it's important because a lot of the arguments that he makes in that thesis, he actually repeats and comes back to, to this day. I mean, world, really? world order. And yeah, and we, could talk, we can go into the details. He is what we would think of as a German romanticist or a German metaphysician. He believes that um, we have no access to reality other than our own unique perception, that action creates meaning. That, we, that there is no inherent truth to history other than the truth that we in the present give it. I mean, he reveals himself as the opposite of a realist. He reveals himself as a kind of will to power. Um, you know, he doesn't really delve too much in Nietzsche. He's more, he's, more, he's more reading Oswald Spengler, a German historian, a romantic historian from the early 20th century. But he, you could see the connection between a kind of the neoconservative, you know, arrogance that we, that, that our actions create reality, right? That famous quote from George Bush that we're an empire now, we create reality. Um, all of that is present in Kissinger's undergraduate thesis. And the, and really? the reason why, and, and again, it's not just a kind of gotcha, aha, look what he wrote in 1950. It carries through. You can see the continuity in his critique of the way McNamara and the, and the systems analyst people and the liberal technocrats fought Vietnam. It's all very much, um, you know, a kind of uh, critique from a, from a German romanticist position that, you know, we need intuition, we need will, we need to act in the world. And, um, and, and it's important because it connects to the neoconservatives and it reveals the neoconservatives it reveals both Kissinger to be profoundly American and the neoconservatives to be profoundly American because American exceptionalism is a kind of will to power German mm -hmm. <laughs> metaphysics. Metaphysics. So, uh, Greg Grandin, in your book, uh, for Kissinger's Shadow, uh, you worked with uh, recently declassified documents, formerly secret recordings. Was there anything new and significant there? Don't we already know all about Kissinger's crimes in Chile and East <laughs> Timor and all the other uh, places? I mean, well, I don't know if we know all about it. You know, there's, there's, uh, 
there's, I'm sure there's plenty not revealed, but we know there is an enormous amount of um, recorded material, um, transcribed material, the telephone calls, the the, uh, the declassified documents, all revealing um, Kissinger's Kissinger's indifference, at the very least, to to to, to um, human beings outside of a, the core of Europe and the core of the United States. But um, again. Uh, uh, what I was trying to do is use that as a way of getting coming at Kissinger from a different angle. Because you know, think of Hitchens' book, you know, the, you know that kind of prosecutorial passion that Hitchens uh, brought to bear on Kissinger. Um, it's fun, and and but and, and it's and it's and and who wouldn't like to see Kissinger hauled up before a People's Tribunal? But it's not particularly useful in understanding how we got here, I think, and, and how Kissinger isn't unique. He's not, you know, Charles Beard, an historian from the 1930s, had a great uh, line about, you know, how we, how we always succumb to a devil's theory of war, right? We're trying to want to blame war on one bad person rather than looking at the way war is the work of systems. And, and, and I think the obsession with Kiss, Kissinger as, as evil setting aside the question of whether or not he is evil, is, um, it, it is a devil's theory of war. We've only got two or three minutes left here. I want to ask you about Kissinger today and Hillary Clinton, who wrote a review of that recent book of his, World Order. Uh, does Hillary regard Kissinger as a war criminal? No, she, she, calls, him, she calls him a friend and, and says she seeks his counsel um, and it's a good example. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the neoconservatives in Iraq, but um, you know, uh, neoconservatism is just the core, a highly self-aware core of a foreign policy consensus that 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 both parties are enthralled to, right? And Hillary Clinton, you know, is would you know, uh, shows you how. And it, I mean, it's 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 indicative of how far we've moved to the right, Kissinger. I mean, Clinton in the 1970s was protesting Cambodia and the invasion of Cambodia, and now, you know, now she calls Kissinger a friend. But part of this is a little bit of affect, right? I mean, the, the, you know, all of these liberals and, and, and establishment figures cozying up to Kissinger, it bestows a bit of gravitas. You know, you get your picture, ta- you know, Samantha Power, you get your picture taken with, with Henry Kissinger, and, um, and, and it, it, I, think, I think it's a performance and a ritual. There's a kind of hollowing out of, of, of what, I mean, who knows, I mean, what does Kissingerism even mean? I think there's been a rehabilitation of Kissinger in the sense that he, he's seen as, as juxtaposed to the reckless adventurism of the neocons and the kind of aimless technocratic pragmatism of Obama. But in reality, he's, he's both of those things. Greg Grandin, his terrific new book is called Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, John. Great to be here. We spoke with Greg Grandin in August 2015. His book, Kissinger's Shadow, has just been published in paperback. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Oriano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Special thanks to Jerry Gorin for recording the Snowden event at UC Irvine. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. 
Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.